We've been traveling through the book of Acts now for a while, and we'll continue to do that next week. But I thought I was on the rotation again. I'd like to switch things up just a little bit. Most of you know that my primary responsibility here is to to lead worship and to help the church to worship. So I thought, let's talk about worship. Um, So I think it'll be good. I I hope it's good. We'll see, I guess. Um, Worship is one of those things. It's one of those words that we... We use a lot. I mean, we're Christians. We use the word constantly. We talk about it constantly. But we never really define it. You know, worship feels almost otherworldly. It's so spiritual. It's so ethereal. There's a mystique that surrounds it that makes it a bit challenging to, to know what we mean when we say worship. I mean, just ask yourself simple questions this week. What is worship? How do I worship? How do I know if I'm doing it right? When do I do it? You know, all these questions seem almost childish. They seem silly. But then you start trying to answer them and you think, man, they're a little, it's a little more challenging than I thought. So we're going to talk about worship today. Part of the reason that worship is difficult to define is that worship is an English word. Essentially, it means ascribing worth to something. But you see, when it comes to the original texts of the Bible, the Hebrew and Greek, there are 20 different words that are all used to describe some kind of worship. There are words that mean to lift your hands. There are words that mean to sing, to shout, to clap, to to act like a madman because of who God is. Most of the words um, carry the idea of bowing, of humbling yourself, of falling on your face as if before a king. So you have passages like, um, oh, come, let us worship, bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So in our English Bibles, um, we see worship, kneel, and bow down. Those three different Hebrew words that are used for worship, kneel, and bow down all carry that same idea of humbling yourself. The three different Hebrew words that are normally always translated as worship in our modern Bibles. But because there are different Hebrew words there, the translators want us to to know that something a little different is is going on there. I think the wonderful thing about worship that we see in the Bible is that there, there isn't a specific thing that makes worship Worship. I mean, there's not a specific way that you have to engage in it. There's not a specific um, liturgy that you have to follow these all all these steps. And then when you sing in church or when you when you say hallelujah or this or that, that's what worship is. Now, the Bible and God are far more concerned about the posture of your heart. And then that that deeply passionate internal worship that is happening overflows out of us in hundreds of different ways, doesn't it? I mean, even this morning, I'm looking around and people are, I mean, some of the words of the songs, man, I'm just getting a little choked up. I look around and people are holding their hands like this. People are lifting their hands. People are kneeling. Worship is something that happens on a deeply internal and personal level, but then it flows out in a hundred different ways. Over the weekend, there was a, a women's conference here and they brought in some amazing musicians to help with it. And... Um, I mean, stylistically, it couldn't be any different than what we typically do here, but it was amazing. Who was doing, who, who's doing it right? Is it them or is it us? I mean, that's a, that's a silly way of thinking about it. 
Because that's not what worship is. Worship is not music. Worship is not even singing necessarily. Worship is something that happens inside. It's something that means a little bit more. So, we're going to be um, this morning in Isaiah chapter 6, a familiar passage, I, I'm sure. But this is the definition that we try to, to use for worship here. This is kind of the foundation that we build our, our worship here on. And it, it's simply this. And it's inadequate, I know. It's not sufficient, I know. But it's something that we can kind of hold on to. Worship is recognizing who God is, recognizing who I am, and acting accordingly. Worship is recognizing who God is, recognizing who I am, and then acting accordingly, whatever that means, wherever you are, whatever the setting or situation you're in. Again, it might flow out in different ways, right? Uh, We're going to be in Isaiah 6, chapter 1. And as you turn there, I'd like to set up just a little bit of a background to the passage since we're jumping into it from nothing. About 800 years before Jesus came to earth, there was a great king that rose to power in Judah. This king took the throne when he was 16 years old and reigned for over 50 years. And by all accounts, you can read about him in in the book of Kings and in 2 Chronicles 26, by all accounts, he was an amazing king. I mean, the land grew and expanded. The army grew to a, a huge size. The people were well protected from the Assyrians who wanted nothing more than to come in and wipe them out completely. Through his ingenuity, this This king developed agricultural things that meant all of the people were well-fed. He dug cisterns all over the land so everyone had access to clean water. We're told that he tore down walls and he rebuilt cities. I mean, he was a good king. And in 2 Chronicles 26, we're told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and that he sought the Lord. And because of that, because of his dependence on God, God blessed him and God blessed the people and they grew. But late in his life, the king had, after a lifetime of doing all the right things in the right ways and giving God the credit that he deserved, the king became proud. The king became arrogant. He began to allow himself to imagine that all these good things that had happened We're not really because of God, they're because of me, right? They're because I am smart, I'm powerful, I'm a good leader. He began to think that anything that he wanted to do, he could do whenever he wanted to do it. So in 2 Chronicles 26, we're told that he decided one day he was going to go into the temple and burn incense on the altar. That activity was something that God had said only priests were allowed to do. And as he went in and he burned incense on the altar, we're told that a very brave high priest there and many others who worked at the temple came and confronted the king and said, this is not right. You shouldn't be doing this. This is not what God has said we are to do and how this is supposed to go. Now the king at that point could have been repentant or whatever you said. He, he he could have asked for forgiveness or he could have asked for mercy or said, you know what, you're right, I've overstepped my bounds. I know this is for the priests only. But instead, in his pride and his arrogance, he became angry and it says he started to rage against the priests. Who do you think you are telling me what to do? 
Do you not know all that I've done? How can you tell me that I'm not supposed to do this? And as he was there screaming at the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And he spent his final days isolated from his family, not allowed to go into the palace, certainly not allowed to go back into the temple, and he died. And Isaiah 6 is where we're going to start. His name was King Uzziah. Isaiah chapter 6, let's read 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Let's pray before we keep going. Father, we come before you and we ask for an experience. We ask like Isaiah had that you would make your presence known here and in other places in our lives, God. We pray to see you. We pray to feel you. We pray that your spirit is at work, God, and that you would have us hear and respond in exactly the way you want us to today. In Jesus' name, amen. In the year King Uzziah died, this is how Isaiah chooses to start this section. Why? Why is it important? I think there are several things that are probably going on here. Um, there are, are, are things that have happened in different generations by which we can have a milestone or a marker. I mean, for some of you, it might have been JFK. And you can tell me right now exactly where you were and exactly how you were feeling when JFK was shot. For some of you, it might have been Oklahoma City or the moon landing or uh, the Twin Towers, what, whatever. There are milestones in our life that carry meaning for us and that we... We immediately, when we start thinking about them, we're sucked in. We know where we were. We know how we felt. We know how other people around us were reacting. So that's one thing. But Isaiah also knew that this king, King Uzziah, represented all of the peace and prosperity and growth and plenty that the land of Judah was experiencing. He, in some way, was responsible for it. People were distraught. They were worried. They were confused. And it is here in the depths and the pits of this anxiety that Isaiah sees the king of kings on his throne. I mean, how, how worried must the people have been when the king is dead? But Isaiah is having a vision here of a king who is not dead 
and who was far more powerful and wise and grand and magnificent than King Uzziah could have ever been. There are times in our, our lives, I think, in which we, we look for comfort in things other than God, and they ultimately fail us, no matter what it is. I mean, think of anything you can, anyone you can. If they are the ones on the throne in your life, they will ultimately fail you. But if you look to the king of kings, there will be more comfort and plenty and provision and protection than anything else or anything else could provide. I think as well, Isaiah sees Uzziah as a representative of the nation in a different way. After all God had done for King Uzziah, Uzziah turned his back on him. And just like that, the people in Judah, the people of Israel, God's people, after they had been brought through so much, after God had done so much for them, they, like the king, were becoming distant and calloused towards God. They were not putting him in his rightful place. And it's in this period, in this set of circumstances, that Isaiah has this experience with God that's like nothing he's ever experienced. It's when he recognizes who God is in a more intimate, in a more powerful way than he ever had before. Maybe this is the time for many of us, we, we have this thing where, you know, we have this kind of head knowledge of God, or maybe it starts there, and at some point it kind of moves into a heart knowledge, into a, a, like a relationship, like we don't just know about God anymore, we know God. So he, Isaiah recognized who God was. And he goes out of his way to make sure we know this was a very vivid experience that he had. What does he say? He says that he saw the Lord. He heard the angels. He felt the temple rumble as the angels were praising God. He tasted the ash from the fire. He smelled the smoke that filled the room. Every sense that he has was overwhelmed by this experience. I saw the Lord, he says. But do you notice, after all the detail he provides, how he describes God? Do you notice? He really doesn't. He doesn't. The only description he gives of, of, of God is he's got, a, he's got a big robe. I mean, it's huge. But what does he do to try and elaborate? He doesn't even go into it. There's a sense in which the best words that we have cannot capture those experiences can't capture who God is. In Exodus, Moses and Aaron and some of the elders go up the mountain to meet with God. You might remember the story. And when they come back down to talk to the people, the only thing they can say is the ground on which he walked, it was like sapphire. It was as bright as the sky. Our best descriptions of God only get as high as the pavement as the hem of his robe. There's a, a sense in which we too have experiences with God. I mean, you've felt God move. I'm sure you have in your heart, during a worship service, during a sermon, during your, your quiet time when you're reading the Bible, you just feel the presence of God. And how do you put that into words to share it with somebody else? How do you do it? I mean, it's impossible. I was thinking this week about how to, 
how to illustrate this. And since Jason's here, I'll pick on him for just a minute. Thank you for being here, Jason. <laughs> so Jason, every once in a while, will come in. Um, we'll have staff meeting or something like that. And pretty regularly, Jason says something like, I got to tell you guys about this dream I had last night. It was crazy. And he starts talking, and he's, he's right. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not surprising to hear him say something like, I, I was at the zoo in my dream. I went to the zoo, and I saw these penguins, and I stole 14 of them. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to take them back to my house because I have a walk-in freezer, and I got a pool in the backyard, and they're going to love it there. But then when I got home, I realized I lived in a small apartment, like in New York City. And I had to keep bringing ice in, and I put them in the bathtub, and then Barney and Taylor Swift walked in, and you know, people are sitting there like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? But to to him, these dreams, and to many of us, I mean, we all have dreams sometimes that are those fever dream type things where they're so vivid and, and real, but they don't make any sense. They're the workings of our subconscious or something like that. But this wasn't a dream that Isaiah had. This was a, a real experience. Every sense he had was overwhelmed. How many of you, having been to the Grand Canyon, have, have taken pictures and, you know, you're there and you see it. I've never been there, but I've been other places that amazed me. You see it and, and it's amazing. And you just stand there like marveling at whatever this thing is. And you get home and you got your phone and you're like, look, you got to see this picture of the Grand Canyon. And your, your friend's like, okay, cool. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't translate. There's nothing you can do when you're in the midst of something that amazing and, and that incredible to, to capture it. That's why our worship, I think, is, is intensely personal. It can happen in settings like this, certainly, but it's very personal. Um... Isaiah recognized who God is in a huge way, in a way that is powerful. I mean, most of us probably haven't had these throne room type experiences or Damascus Road type events, but most of us would also say that we've had experiences like this in which it helped us to recognize more clearly who God was. It's why the angels themselves, Isaiah goes into description about them, they, they are completely and constantly shielding themselves because of the radiance of God, and all they can do is cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, over and over, back and forth. That's all they can do in the presence of God. The word holy is, is used of God some 800 times in the Old Testament alone. And, and the word means different. It means unique. It means separated or, or set apart. That's, that's what they can say. What else can they say? He is holy. God is too magnificent. He is too good. He's too powerful. He's too awesome. He's too radiant. He's too pure. He's too glorious. He's too holy for us to ever really capture with words. Man, we know it when we feel it, don't we? What does Isaiah do after this? Isaiah says, woe is me. 
as he's in the presence of God, as he's overwhelmed by the goodness and the majesty of God, he inevitably thinks briefly about himself. I don't deserve to be here. Woe is me. That's, that's how he responds. That's his initial cry of worship. God, I don't deserve to be here. Woe is me. Just before this, maybe on the same page in your Bibles in chapter 5, Isaiah is doing what prophets do. He's calling people to repentance, to turn back to God, to leave their, their evil ways behind and realign their hearts and their minds with God's ways. And just before this in chapter 5, he says, woe to you. Woe to you who call good evil and evil good. Woe to you who wake up in the morning just to seek after strong drink. Woe to you. I mean, the list goes on and on. Woe to you who through bribes acquit the guilty and deny justice to the innocent. I mean, there's nothing untrue. He was doing, again, what prophets were supposed to do. But isn't it funny how here in the presence of God, you can't think about anything else. The sins of others fade away. And all you can think about is your standing before God. The best here among us would would say woe to me. I'm ruined. I am undone. I don't deserve to be in your presence. You're too good. You're too holy. Isaiah recognizes the chasm, the great distance. Even though he's in close proximity, there is an immeasurable distance between himself and between God. He doesn't even think in this moment about Uzziah, who would have certainly been on his mind. Isaiah did everything, or Uzziah did everything right and messed up at the last second. Woe is me. Woe is me, it's all he can say. I like the way one pastor put it when, when talking about this idea. He said, two men that are standing at the base of Mount Everest don't argue back and forth about which of them is taller. They look up and tremble. When we're in the presence of God, all we can do is look up and tremble. There's no amount of pride or arrogance that can exist in his presence. All pretense vanishes immediately when you are before such greatness. We're told that there's a time coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we hear that, and for years I thought that it was going to come because Jesus was like this warrior-type person who was just going to make everyone submit, but I don't think that's what's going to happen at all. I think when you're face-to-face with God, when you're face-to-face with the King of Kings or the Lord of Lords, there's no other thing that you can do but bow. It's not like it's going to, you're going to have to convince yourself or say, do I really want to do this? Like he's going to overwhelm everything that you are. He's too good. He's too beautiful. He's too magnificent. He's too radiant. He's too holy. When we experience that, we bow without even thinking about it. You see, what he does next, though, also applies to our lives. What does God do? 
he erases that distance between himself and Isaiah. And he's erased the distance between himself and us. He has paid the price. Isaiah tells us later on, I mean, one of the most beautiful passages in the whole scripture that helps us to understand the atonement. What does he say? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Because of what Jesus did, the gap between us is far less than it should be. And it's all because God, in his love, comes down to our level. He wants to meet us. He wants to fill us. He wants to give us these experiences. He wants to change us. What love, my God. The song we sang earlier. What love, my God. How'd that first verse go? Anybody remember? What love, my God, would send you down to earth? What king would take a low and lonely birth? Yet to this dark and broken place you came to sleep beneath the stars that you had made. Like... Do you understand how good God is? When you feel him, when his presence is real to you, you can't do anything else but worship. Here I'm like a, I can't even say what I think right now, but like I can't get words out. Woe is me. I hope that you have experiences like this often. I hope that your worship is, is not something you do out of ritual or habit or routine, but I hope that you come here and throughout your whole life you are seeking out experiences with God that you try to recognize through scripture reading or through discipleship or through huddles or whatever. You recognize more clearly who God is and then you respond more fully to that. I'm curious, what is on the throne of your life, though? We're all prone. I'm prone as much as anyone to put other things on the throne where God should be. And sometimes he has to break through when I'm not expecting it. It's always a little easier when you seek him, because when you seek him, you'll find him. He will make himself available. But our worship then, it flows into something else. Genuine worship flows into mission. Genuine worship flows into obedience, happy, willing, cheerful obedience. So when you have experience with God, when you recognize who he is, when you recognize who you are, you respond accordingly. But then what do you do? You, you go where he sins. You do what he's called you to do. We, as a church, do what he's called us to do. We, as Christians across the globe, do what he's called us to do. And we, as individuals, when he puts personal calls on our lives, we say, here am I. Send me. I'll go. I'll do it. What God called Isaiah to after this was not an especially fun thing. Isaiah had been, been requesting that the people repent and repent. 
and his words were falling on deaf ears, and God says, okay, Isaiah, you're going to go and you're going to tell them the time of repentance is, is past. I'm going to separate people. I'm going to bring destruction. I'm going to tear everything down until only a seed remains, and then I'll rebuild it. But I mean, that doesn't sound like fun. But Isaiah doesn't pause to think about it. He doesn't stop to, to you know, consider anything. He says, here am I, send me. Can I go? Can I do this? Can I be a part of what you want me to do? Isaiah, the, the book on the whole is a bit bleak up until about chapter 40, but then it breaks into the most hopeful section of promises that we find in almost the entire Bible. God is going to bring restoration. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring comfort. He's going to bring healing. He's going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. And of course, what we already talked about with the Messiah. But this is what worship is. Worship is recognizing who God is. Recognizing who I am. And then acting accordingly. And then worship fuels mission. It fuels mission. If you love God, you're going to serve God. You're going to do what God wants you to do. It's not going to be a hard decision. So I, I guess we'll close this morning. I, I just want, want to ask you a few questions. Have you experienced God? Maybe some of you are here just visiting, just kind of seeing what this is all about. You don't know that you have experienced God yet. I'd invite you this morning to, to come forward and pray and seek that. God will meet you. Maybe you have been a Christian for 50 years. And you can remember times in, in your history where you knew that God was in the room. You knew that his presence was moving. But it seems kind of like a distant memory now. If that's you, maybe you come and pray and ask for a fresh experience of some sort. You pray that God would help you to recognize who he is. I'd ask you today, too, if you're living a life filled with worship. Worship is not a single thing. It doesn't matter whether you do it on this mountain or that mountain. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter if you're listening to K-Love or something in the car. That's all secondary. Are you living lives in which you are recognizing who God is, recognizing who you are, and responding constantly to that? And then lastly, have you answered the call? We know, without a doubt, God has called us all to love him, to love others, and to go into all the world, preaching the gospel, teaching what Jesus has commanded, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We, we know the callings he's given all of us. But is there a call maybe on your life that for some reason you've been resistant to for a while? So maybe some of us this morning just need to say, here am I, send me. You're too good for me not to follow.